Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. We'd love to meet you after the service. Um, you are joining us at an exciting time in the life of our church because for the last two years, we've been meeting here in the evenings at Cross Life Church. And man, we, we've loved it and God has been, been gracious and blessed us and we've grown and we've actually run out of space. And so that's why we added a third service. And uh, man, we've seen God change marriages and, and uh, people go from death to life and we've baptized people and invested in the next generation. But we did say, God, man, would you open a door for us to own our own property, to man, just own our own building, plant a flag here in the community for the gospel for many, many years to come. And so we were praying, praying, praying. And earlier this year, God opened that door. Okay, God opened that door in a 10,000 square foot property right around the corner at 475 Westfield Road. And because of the generosity of our church, earlier this year, we were able to buy that property and begin renovating it. Okay, when we bought it, it was a ski and snowboard shop, not super helpful for a church. Okay, but we, man, we are renovating it and that's been going great. And man, the progress has come so far along that four weeks from today, we will have our grand opening services in our brand new building. Okay, pretty exciting stuff. It's gonna be at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Okay, 9.15 and 11 a.m. Big sigh of, oh my goodness, I have to wake up in the morning. I know, hang in there. We're gonna get your coffee. Um, but it's gonna be here in uh, four weeks, which is really, really hard to believe. And um, it is, it's a really significant moment in the life of our church. And it's not just significant because it's like, oh great, we have our own place now with our own keys and we can meet in the mornings. Um, there's not a lot of moments in the Christian life where you get a tangible expression of God. Right, like God gives some of them to, like we have communion, right? That's like a tangible symbol. We have baptism, that's a tangible symbol. Man, this building is a physical, tangible expression of God's favor on this church. Pretty cool thought. Like you're gonna walk in there and be like, this is evidence of God's favor on my church. This is actual concrete evidence of the power of prayer. Man, that we prayed and prayed and prayed and God opened a door and really provided what I think is the ideal property and location and timing for us to move in there. And so it is a huge moment in the life of our church, make no mistake. Most churches get to do this one time, maybe two times in their entire life cycle. You're growing, you need space, you ask God to open the door, he does, you get the building. So now we're really, really fired up about it and we wanna prepare for it well. We don't wanna just kind of have it fly by and be like, oh, wasn't that cool that fall of 2022? Uh, man, we wanna prepare for it practically, we wanna prepare for it spiritually. So we put together a game plan. So grab this card. It's right there on your seat. Even if you got it last week, do me a solid. I know, play along, grab this card. Okay, on the one side, it's pretty. It's got the grand opening details. Put it on your refrigerator, put it in your car so that we don't have anybody that shows up here on the 16th and is like, where is everybody? It's like, we're over there. Okay, so 9, 15, 11, pick your favorite service. Love to have you do the one. Okay, on the back of it is our game plan. This is how we're going to lead our church to prepare both practically and spiritually for this transition. And I want to draw your attention to one of those things in particular. October 1st, it's at the very top, serving teams training. Serving teams training. This is the major way that we are going to prepare practically to move into this building. It's going to be Saturday, October 1st. That is your first opportunity to experience the brand new facility, okay? So it'll be all set up, ready to go. Man, we're going to worship together, which is going to be awesome. I'm going to share the why behind the what of serving. Like, why do we do serving teams here? How does that help you become more like Jesus? And how does that help other people meet Jesus? And then we're going to get really practical so that you know exactly what what to expect when you're on a serving team in the new facility. Okay, so who is this for? Well, let me tell you who's this for. If you're currently on a serving team, it is most definitely for you, okay? Plan to be there. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Man, just be there. You're gonna love it. Um, if you have been on a team in the past, but for whatever reason you're not currently serving, it's for you as well. We would love for you to take this opportunity to kind of jump back in uh, and to, to get back on your serving team, get in that routine. Um, and if you're here, maybe you're new or 
for whatever reason, you've just never been on a serving team before, this is for you. This is an awesome moment for you to jump in and say, in this special season of my church's life, man, I want to jump in and help make this possible, okay? And here's kind of what we figured out. Our team did the math, and th- this new campus is bigger. There's more parking. There's more. So we need, we need more people to serve. And so we said, okay, what are the numbers? How many more serving slots do we need at this new facility to be sort of fully staffed, as it were? And the answer is 40, okay? We need 40 more slots to be kind of fully staffed to be able to welcome people into the church the way that we believe God wants us to do that. And so that can be 40 people that are already serving who say, hey, you know what? I'll step up and I'll serve some more. Or that could be 40 people who aren't currently serving, serving for the first time, or it could be a combination of both. So here would be uh, what I would suggest to you. Man, ask the Lord, God, is this a way that I could honor you and serve my church in this season? Uh, man, is be there at the serving team's training, jump on a team so that we can continue to put the hospitality of God on display at a corporate level so that we can continue to invest in the next generation so that we can continue to worship the Lord and joy and gladness. All of that is only possible because of our incredible serving team. So if you're on a serving team, thank you. And if you're not on a serving team, it's an awesome opportunity to jump in and to use your gifts. So October 1st, do me a solid. You ready? You got to go to centerseville.com backslash grand opening. That's where all the information is for everything. And RSVP to let us know you're coming because it's going to be fun. We're going to provide on-site child care. We're going to have dessert afterwards. Nobody likes to run out of dessert, right? So you want to make sure that you say, I'm coming, so I get dessert, and you take care of my kids, and we'd love to do that. All right, so that's October 1st. Um, Let's just pray. Let's ask God to bless that, and we'll jump into 1 Peter. Lord Jesus, you are a servant. Uh, You came to to serve, not to be served, and you washed the feet of your disciples as an example to us. So Lord, I thank you for all the men and women here that do serve, and I pray for all the men and women who will start serving in this season. I just pray that we'd be a church that is characterized by a heart of service in the way that uh, you serve us, and I pray that you'd use that as a testimony in our community. So God, would you bless October 1st? Would you bless that evening specifically? Would you help us prepare spiritually for this transition? And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're going to go all the way through chapter 3, verse 7 today, okay? So just, you got to listen fast today, okay? That's what you got to do, okay? Because we're going to cover a lot of content. Um, we love to walk chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, okay? That's just kind of what we do as a church. So we've been in 1 Peter for about five weeks at this point. And one of the reasons we like to do that is when you walk through the Bible, it forces you to deal with difficult topics, Okay, it doesn't kind of let you, you know, dance around things. You sort of have to deal with what the Bible says. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to wrestle with a difficult topic so that we might grow and become more robustly biblical. Because here's what we believe. Everything that the scriptures say are true, good, and beautiful. Because God is true, good, and beautiful, and the Bible is from him. We believe everything that is in the scripture, even the things that challenge us, even the things that might be different than our cultural values, are true, good, and beautiful. And so what we're trying to do as a church is just to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be transformed by the truth of his word. So here's what we're talking about today. You ready? Submission. Yay, submission. Raise your hand if you came here and was like, I needed Josh to preach on submission today. That's what I was hoping he would preach on today, right? Sarah did. Okay, great. Uh, Mike, I mean, it's just, right now, people don't show up being like, I hope that the, you know, it's, I, you know, I don't know if you're aware, submission, not a super popular topic in our culture, okay? And so oftentimes the church doesn't talk about this topic. We just like skip over this section of 1 Peter. We talk about something else because it, it, it is offensive to people. Um, but here, here's my conviction as a pastor and our conviction as our church is that sometimes where you least want to look is where you most need to look. Like the area that you're, you're like, I'm not going to that, is like, we need to lean into that and see what does God say about submission and authority. And, 
And here's what, here's what we're going to find. What God says about it is, is good for us and glorifies him. And so that's what we're going to find. We're just going to dig in there and see what, what God says about submission and authority. And um, I thought about, why don't we like talking about submission? You know, like, why don't I like talking about it? Why don't you like talking about it? And this isn't all the reasons, but I came up with four. Um, the first reason, I think, is Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, if you, if you knew the church, they're sort of the very beginning, the first, the first parents. So here's what happened in the Adam and Eve story. God was like, hey, guys, I made you this incredible place. You can eat of all the trees in the garden. There's one tree that you can't eat of, and what do they do? They're like, we're eating that tree. They basically just like threw off God's authority, bucked his authority. I know better. I'm going to do what I want to do, and disaster resulted. And what the scriptures say is that we all have Adam in us, right? That we all inherited his nature, and so whether we like it or not, we reject authority by nature. All you have to do is have kids, and you know this is true, okay? They can rebel before they can speak, okay? It's like, it's like don't put your finger in the outlet that will kill you. And they're like, I'm going to do it. And you're like, what? Like, why? You know, it's just like kids just rebel. That's just what they do. So we've all kind of got it in us. Um, I think the second reason we don't like submission and authority is probably pride. I don't know about you, but I just, I tend to think that I know best. And like, if I was in charge, I would do things differently. You ever been there? If I was the boss, if I was the professor, if I was the blah, blah, I'd do things differently. If I was the coach. Um, I remember this uh, at my last church. So before planning Center Church, I was like an entry-level pastor at a big, like mega church, like 9,000 people kind of thing. And I had all kinds of opinions about how the church should be run. You know, we should be doing this. We should be doing that. And then we came and planted this church. And I was like, oh, ministry is much more nuanced and complex and difficult than I realized, and I repent. Like, it was just, it was a humbling experience because I was like, I don't actually know as much as I think I know. So I think sometimes we don't like submission to authority because we're, we're proud. I think the third reason we don't like submission is the American spirit, okay? I mean, our country was literally founded on the back of a successful rebellion, right? Like, that's what it was. Every 4th of July, we, we celebrate how successful our rebellion was by blowing things up, okay? Like, that is what we do in America. So, some cultures sort of naturally default towards submission. Ours does not, okay? Ours naturally defaults to, don't tell me what to do, America, okay? That's what I'm going to do. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, you know, don't tread on me. I'll, I'm a snake and I'll bite you, whatever. Um, anyway, so just American spirit doesn't like submission. And then fourthly, and this is probably a little, uh, more, a little closer to home, is that some of us have had really bad experiences experiences with authority. And so like maybe you had like an overbearing dad, maybe you had like a really harsh pastor, maybe you had uh, like a really, really selfish bad boss. So you've seen authority go wrong and so you're like, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about that. So there's, there's plenty of reasons why we don't like authority, we don't like submission, we don't like talking about it. Um, but, but we have to talk about it because submission and authority is a major theme in the Bible. I mean, it is a major theme in the Bible. What is salvation if not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord? What is sanctification or growing in godliness if not increasingly submitting your desires to God's will? Right? Submission is absolutely central to what it means to become a Christian and to grow as a Christian. So we've, we've got to talk about submission if we're going to be people who are following and becoming more like Jesus. And the truth is, authority is everywhere. I mean, whether I like it or you like it or not, all of us are both in authority and under authority simultaneously. We are all in authority and under authority simultaneously. So all of us are under the authority of God. We're under the authority of the government. You're under the authority of an, an employer, a professor, right? You might be under the, employee, uh, under the authority of a parent. We're also at the same time all in authority. We're in authority over our personal choices. Uh, a lot of us are in authority over children. We're in authority over employees. We're in authority over students or kids that we coach on a team, right? So we can't avoid it. So whether we like authority or not, we are all both under it and in it. And so what we need is we need the Bible to teach us, man, what submission and authority should be and how we should live that out. Okay, and so here's what Peter's going to do in, in this entire section. His one big idea, if you're taking notes, is this. If you're a Christian, you're called to entrust yourself to God and submit yourself to others. You're called to, you're called to entrust yourself to God and submit yourself to others. And Peter's going to give us four arenas in life that we do that. Okay, four arenas. Here's the first one. Number one, we're called to submit our flesh to God. We're called to submit our flesh 
to God. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Peter, excuse me, uses that word beloved to express his care and concern for these people. Man, Peter's not saying this for their harm. He's saying this for their good. He says, beloved, I urge you, I plead with you, I prevail upon you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That word abstain literally means to restrain yourself, to restrain yourself. So here's what Peter is saying. There are desires in your life that you need to submit to God. You don't need to satisfy them. You don't need to express them. You don't need to explore them. You need to submit them. You need to submit them to God. Our culture says if it feels good, it is good. Peter says not everything that feels good is good for you. Not everything that feels good is good for you. So what are the passions of the flesh? Well, simply put, they are any desire within me or within you that is contrary to God's will and God's law. Anything that is in us that is contrary to God's will and God's law. So you can apply that in about 100,000 different ways. And Peter says, submit those to God. Submit them to God. Don't, don't explore them. Don't satisfy them. Don't express them. Don't feed them. Submit them to God. Why? He says, because they are waging war against your soul. Those desires in you are actively trying to do harm to the immaterial, invisible, spiritual part of you called your soul. So here's what we learn. Just like you can do damage to your body, you can do damage to your soul. Just like you can do damage to your body, you can do damage to your soul. And we've probably all experienced this. I don't know if I've experienced it. Maybe you've experienced it. You've been in a, man, you've just been giving in to a sinful pattern of behavior. And about six weeks in, you just feel like, man, I just feel far from God. I don't feel like I have any desire to read the scriptures. I don't really want to be in Christian community. I'm kind of dead on the inside. What's happening? Man, that sin is waging war against your soul. Notice that it says war, not battle, right? It's not like a one-time thing. It's not like I graduated from seminary. They were like, congratulations, you've won the battle. Here's your diploma, and we'll take your flesh away from you. I wish they would have done that. That's not how it works. Unfortunately, you don't age out of your flesh. You can't learn enough Bible to remove your flesh. If you are a Christian, then the rest of your life is a day-by-day battle between your spirit and your flesh. A war includes many, many battles. And pastorally, and I think this would be helpful, in every single, ba- or in every single war, you lose some battles. Right? You never win every single battle in the war. It is possible to win the war while also losing some battles. So what that means is that, unfortunately, like, yeah, you are going to give in sometimes to that sinful temptation. And you're going to get angry at your spouse. You're going to be sinfully anxious. You're going to yell at your kids. And you're going to go to that website that you shouldn't go to. Like, you're going to lose some battles. So what do you do if you're a Christian when you lose a battle? Well, the good news of the gospel is that God didn't save you because you never lose any battles. He saved you through the work of Christ so that when you do lose your battle, you can repent, you can receive the grace of God, and you can get back out there. You can get back out there and keep fighting. That is what it means to grow in Christian maturity. And if there's anyone in your life that you look up to as a spiritual mentor, do you know why? It's because their campaign against the flesh is going well. That's what that means. That's what Christian maturity is. Someone doesn't become mature in Christ because they have a different personality than you, because they had a better upbringing than you, because they have different proclivities in a different environment. They become mature in Christ because they have actively campaigned against their flesh for like four decades. And like the battle is going well, they're winning battles, the war is going in their favor, and you say, I want to become like her, I want to become like him one day. Right? We want to be the kind of church that comes alongside of one another and helps each other win more battles than we lose. That's what we're trying to do as a church. So we've got to submit those desires to God, to his will, to his law, because when we do that, our souls are healthy and our souls flourish. And there's actually a second benefit that Peter mentions. Look at verse 12. He says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
The word conduct refers to day-to-day living, okay? So this is how you act at school, at work, at home, at, the, you know, at your soccer practice, in the restaurant. This is just your day-to-day behavior. Peter is saying when you submit your passions to God's law and you, your conduct is honorable in your day-to-day behavior, it adds credibility to what you believe. It adds credibility to what you believe. So verse 12 assumes that Gentiles, that is non-Christians, people who are close to you but far from God, are going to misunderstand and are going to disagree with you. And as a result of that, some of them are going to speak evil against you. That's what Peter is assuming here. And some of you have experienced that at work or at home or at school. And here's what Peter is saying. When you are criticized, the way to silence your critics is not to speak to them. It's to live before them. The way to silence critics is not to come at them online. It's to live an honorable life in their presence. And what Peter says is when you keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, this is amazing, God actually uses it to save some of the very people who criticized you. He says, he says on the day of visitation, they will see your good works and glorify God. That's a, a way to talk about salvation. I've actually seen this happen. So I know a guy who uh, his in-laws, when he, when he first married their daughter, thought that he was far too religious. That's the phrase they use. He's too religious. He's too serious about this stuff. They didn't like how committed he and their daughter were to the gospel. They, I mean, very outward about that. Well, over time, man, this, this guy and, and his wife just had an opportunity to, man, serve his in-laws, pray for his in-laws, care for his in-laws, you know, invest in the relationship. And then there was a season of real suffering and grief that his in-laws went through. And, uh, man, they just had a chance to really love them and care for them well. And uh, over about 10 years, his in-laws just became more and more open to spiritual conversation. I mean, in the, in the beginning, you know, he was telling me it was like nothing. Like, I tried to bring up anything, and they were just like, don't, we, I don't want to talk about that. And then just oh, it, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then, praise the Lord, last year they came to faith in Christ. They came to faith in Christ. They're now a part of like an incredible church. I mean, it's just amazing. And it was the power of honorable conduct over, you know, like a decade. And so I'd encourage you, maybe you have family members like that. Maybe you have friends like that. Maybe you have coworkers like that. And, and I know sometimes you feel like nothing, nothing is working. That Why even bother? But like, don't, don't overestimate the power of honorable conduct over time. God often uses it to change people's lives. So here's the question that I think we should ask ourselves from this first point. Is your conduct drawing people to Christ or driving them away? Is your conduct drawing people to Christ or driving them away? Peter says we're called to submit our flesh to God. Here's the second area we're called to submit. Number two, we're called to submit to the government. We're called to submit to the government. It's only going to get worse from here. I'll just be honest with you. Okay, we're called to submit to the government. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, that'd be like our president, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So that phrase, be subject, is going to show up three times in the rest of this text. Peter's going to use it to introduce new arenas that we are called to be subject in. And the phrase, be subject, literally means to submit to or obey. Okay, that's just what the word means, submit to or obey. So what Peter is saying is, hey, if you are a Christian, you are called to submit to and obey your government. Okay, you are called to submit to and obey your government. Now, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, if you want to do some homework, talks about the fact that God has instituted government, the government back then, the government today. And he's instituted government for at least three reasons that are all really, really helpful, okay? The first one is this, to maintain order. The second is to uphold justice. And the third is to restrain evil, okay? To maintain order. Who here likes highways? Who likes electricity? Who like Francis likes electricity? Who likes plumbing? Who likes airports? Like we all like those things. I'm grateful that I can get in my car and drive to the Outer Banks, okay? You know where you can't do that? A lot of developing countries. If you ever want to be grateful for the infrastructure of the United States, go to a developing country and just be like, man, it's very hard to get a lot of things done when the infrastructure is not developed. 
So part of what the government does is it upholds order so that life can flourish, okay? The second thing the government does is it upholds justice, okay? So law enforcement officers, the justice system, what they do is they help uphold justice. Imperfectly, sure, but much better than the alternative, Okay, so you should be grateful for law enforcement officers. You should be grateful for the justice system that is not perfect, but does the best that they can to try to uphold justice in our society, much more so than if we had no system at all. And then thirdly, to restrain evil. This simply means because there is threat of punishment, people are not as bad as they would be. All right, it's just simply true. People are not as bad as they would be because there is a threat of punishment if we do X, Y, or Z, okay? So government is instituted by God, and in many ways, government is a blessing from God, right? Government is very important but government is also imperfect. And the reason government is imperfect is because it is, it is made up of imperfect people. It's made up of sinners. It's made up of people who by nature are self-interested and selfish and deceived. Even Christians who are in government are still like us. They're in process. So they're going to make all sorts of mistakes, and they're not always going to do what you think they should do, and sometimes they'll do things that drive you crazy. Right? And yet, we are still called to submit to the government. Why? We don't, we don't submit to the government for their sake. We submit to the government for the Lord's sake. That's what Peter says. We submit to the government because we believe God is able to use imperfect government in his perfect plans. That is why we submit to the government. And you say, but what if I don't agree with my government? I didn't vote for my government. I don't like my government. Great. Peter didn't say do any of those things. Peter said, submit to your government, okay? He didn't say vote for, like, appreciate, agree with. He said, submit to your government. And consider who the emperor was when Peter wrote this. This guy named Nero. Nero was crazy. He, he literally thought he was a god, commanded people to worship him, and oversaw mass persecutions of Christians. Meant Pete, the apostle Peter was put to death under Nero. And yet, even in that context, Peter says, submit to your governing authorities, Okay, it's not, a, it's not like, hey, submit to them if you like them, submit to them if it's your political party, submit to them if you think they're doing a good job. It's just like, submit to them. So here, here's the biblical principle. You ready? You should submit to the government except when commanded to sin. We should be good citizens until we can no longer be good, good Christians. We should be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians, okay? And this brings up the topic of civil disobedience. Okay, if your government is asking you to sin, you should refuse, you should never violate your ultimate authority, God, because of a secondary authority, the government, okay, or your employer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was thinking through it. I can think of three examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. You might be able to come up with more than this, but um, three came to mind. The first was the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus. So Pharaoh commanded the midwives to murder children. They refused to do that, and God honored them, okay, so civil disobedience. The second was uh, Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel was commanded to no longer pray to the one true God, but to pray to a false God. Daniel uh, refused to do that, and as a result was um, thrown in the lion's den, and then God miraculously delivered him. And the third is in Acts 4 and 5, when the apostles are arrested for preaching, and the local government commands them to stop preaching, and they responded, we must obey God rather than you, and they went on preaching, okay? So three examples of civil, diso civil disobedience in the Bible. So civil disobedience is biblically supported, but it is worth considering that there is a lot of bad government in the Bible and only a few instances of civil disobedience. Like, if you want some examples of bad government, if you want to feel better about our current government, just read the Old Testament. A lot of bad government, just a few examples of civil disobedience. So this is not like, oh, if I disagree with the current administration's tax policy, I don't have to do what they say. Right? If I don't like the personality of that woman or the, or the, or the lifestyle of that man, I don't have to do what they say. No, this is like, man, if the government is commanding you to sin, okay, now we, we disobey civilly. And other than that, as long as we can still be good Christians, we're called to be good citizens, even if we don't agree with what our government is doing. 
So what happens when we do that? Well, verse 15, it's very similar to the previous section. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So are there still ignorant, foolish people in the world? Yes. It's called the internet if you haven't heard of it. Okay? Are they usually loud or quiet? They're usually very loud. How does Peter say you silence ignorant, foolish people? It's not by arguing with them online. It's not by putting a bumper sticker on your car. It's not even by sticking a sign in your yard. Do you know how you silence foolish, ignorant people? You do it by living godly lives. You do it by living lives based on your convictions that are so obviously good and righteous that they are silenced. Peter goes on, verse 16, live as people who are free. You are free in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are free indeed. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So don't use your freedom in Christ to be belligerent. Well, I don't have to listen to them because X, Y, and Z, Christian. It's like, no, like don't use your freedom in Christ to be belligerent. Instead, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What does that mean? Honor everyone means everyone. It means people you disagree with, people who vote differently than you, people that you find infuriating, honor them. Peter's like, if you can't honor anything about them, honor the image of God in them. Okay, honor everyone. And then what does he say? Love the brotherhood. Okay, well, the brotherhood refers to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. So that means be particularly concerned with loving, caring for, serving your church family. Galatians chapter 6, Paul would say, hey, those do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. So love and care for your local church family. Fear God. What does that mean? It means make God the most important, central, weighty thing in your life. Make him be the number one thing in every single area. Make him the sun in your solar system. And then finally, he says, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. What does that mean? It means show honor to those in government positions. If you can't respect the person, respect the office. So this is what this means. In your online communication, in your talking with friends, in your texting, in your phone calls, speak in an honorable way about Governor Yunkin and about President Biden. Don't just speak in an honorable way about politicians you agree with or you voted for, but speak in an honorable way about politicians you did not vote for and that you do not agree with. So here's the principle. Politics are important, but they are not of first importance. Politics are important because ideas have consequences. Okay, so you should vote, and we should make use of that freedom that we've been provided. So here's, you know, next time there's an election, here's my recommendation. Read your Bible, vote your conscience, trust Jesus, okay? That's what I think you should do. Politics are important, but they're not of first importance. So, so here's what that means. The kingdom of God is not arriving on Air Force One. It's not. So what does that mean? It means make sure you're mo more known for your Savior than for your party. Make sure people are more familiar with your biblical convictions than with your political convictions, Make sure the thing that comes to mind when, when your friend and your neighbor and your coworker and your classmate thinks your name isn't, oh, their blank party or their blank party or their blank issue or their blank agenda, but they are a follower of Jesus. And even though I don't agree with them, their conduct is really, really compelling. So Peter says we submit to the government. Here's number three. We're called to submit at work. Called to submit at work. It's only getting worse from here, folks. All right, submit your desires to God, submit to the government, now submit at work. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. All right, you see that phrase, be subject again? Peter just keeps dragging that theme all the way through and applying it in different areas. Um, the, the word that we have in my translation, servant, I don't know what you have in yours, the, the Greek word there indicates something in between a slave and an employee. It's not a slave, but it's not an employee like modern day employees. It would be like the best modern equivalent would be like an employee who couldn't change jobs would probably be the best uh, modern day equivalent of that. Um, and so what, what Peter's doing is he's talking about what it looks like to be subject at work. Now, real quick, in the past, this passage has been used to justify slavery. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible itself says that people will twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. So people will have some sort of selfish, sinful desire, and then they'll go to the Bible, pull a verse out of context, misinterpret it, and then try to use it to support their position. And that's what people have done throughout history with slavery and this verse. But slavery is a sin. It always has been. It always will be. It violates the image of God. It's an assault on the image of God as established in Genesis chapter 1. And it violates the fundamental kingdom ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself. As one famous apologist or abolitionist put it, you cannot love your neighbor and own your neighbor at the same time. All right, and so this text does not support slavery. It never has. It never will. The word servant there doesn't even mean slave. Not in the sense that uh, slavery was practiced here in the Western world in, in, the, in the 18 and 1900s. Okay, so um, Peter, Peter says it means close, something close to your employee. So Peter says, be subject to your employer. So we're all here. Uh, if you uh, your work, employer, if you're a student, this is like professor, okay, or school, right? So be subject to your employer with all respect. What does that phrase mean? Well, with all respect means that you should have a healthy desire to please your boss. That's literally what the phrase means, a healthy desire to please your boss. In other words, be an easy person to manage. Be a team player. Make things better at work. Be the kind of person that de-escalates drama, not escalates it. Don't be, don't be with everybody else in the break room gossiping or on the text thread, I can't believe he did that, she did that again. Be somebody that makes everything better. Be the kind of employee that your boss comes to you six months in and is like, can I hire any of your friends? Is there anyone from your church that would like to work here? You're so easy to manage. You make things so much better. I want more people like you here. That is what it means for a servant to be subject to their employer. Peter says, hey, do that for good managers. He says, also do it for bad ones. He says, do it for unjust ones. Unjust is the word crooked. So that could mean harsh, demanding, insensitive, unreasonable, selfish, overbearing. Basically, any negative characteristic that you have in your mind of one of your supervisors would fit under unjust. And Peter says, hey, don't, don't just be a great employee who seeks to please their supervisor with great uh, managers, but also do it with very, very difficult, harsh ones. Now, why in the world would you do that? Why in the world would you do that? Well, when you do that at work, when you bear up under a bad boss, you show your fellow employees that you have an internal source of strength and hope that they don't have. It, it demonstrates that your anchor is in something outside of your vocation. Your anchor is in the Lord. So what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean like never change jobs, but it does mean don't get on indeed the first minute that something gets hard. Because here's what most young adults do. Most young adults stay in their job for 18 months and then it gets less exciting and a little bit hard and they change jobs. And two things are the result of that practice in our culture today. The first is crushing loneliness and the second is ineffective mission. Because here's what sociologists have demonstrated. It takes two years to form meaningful relationships. So the reason so many young adults are crushingly lonely, the reason that we don't have more of an impact in our workplace is because we leave before we develop any significant relationships. So I'm not saying never change jobs. There might be a moment by the wisdom of God that you need to change jobs. And I'm just saying, like, hang in there because there might be more that God wants to do through you than you realize. And what Peter's going to say is there's definitely something that God wants to do in you. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. That means this is a means of grace in your life. This is a way God's going to bring grace into your life. When mindful of God, with your eyes fixed on the Lord because you fear him, you endorse, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So what happens when you hang in there in an unjust work environment? Then you continue to serve and you continue to man, respect your employers. Well, God uses it to shape your character. Number one, he teaches you to be really grateful for the perfect leadership of Jesus. Aren't you great that your Lord is not unjust? 
that he's not ungrateful, man, that he's not unreasonable, that he's not selfish, that he's not petty, but he's perfect. So when you have a horrible boss, it can be an anti-type that makes you really grateful for your perfect Lord. That's one thing that God does. The second thing that God does is God teaches you to endure under hardship just like Jesus did. And you walk in the footsteps of, of, of Jesus, you start to understand his sufferings more when he suffered unjustly. And you start to become more like him, your character be, is shaped. The third thing that God does in that moment is he reminds you that your vocation in life is not your purpose in life. Your vocation in life is not your purpose in life. Many, many people look for purpose and transcendence at work, but that's just something that your job cannot provide. It was never designed to provide that, and it can't provide that. Work is good, but work is not ultimate. The truth is, most people have a job. Do you know what a job is? A job is something that you wouldn't do if you didn't get paid for it. All right, real quick, raise your hand if you would do your job for free. Okay, we got one, okay? That's a calling. That's what that is, okay? So here's the difference. Most people have jobs, which is great. Jobs are great. Like, you know, you provide for your family, provide for yourself, you contribute to society. Great, you help people. A few people have callings. So like Bronson and I have a calling. Like he would coach soccer for free, right? And I would do this for free. I'm glad you pay me, but like I would do this for free. But even people with callings will tell you that they're still suffering in callings. There's still disappointment in callings. They don't satisfy your soul. But, but we live in this world that's like, hey, there's no God, there's no transcendence, so you've got to find your purpose in life at your job. I'm just telling you, you're not going to find it there. Don't waste 10 years of your life going from four to five different companies thinking, if I just find the right tech company to work for, it'll do it. It's like you just won't. Instead, find your contentment and your delight and your satisfaction in the Lord. So when you suffer at work, it reminds you that this world is not your home and it teaches you to long for heaven. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Real quick, aren't you glad that when you mess up at work, you weren't beaten for it? So if you're kind of frustrated with me, take it up with Peter, okay? They had a lot worse back then. Okay, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. But what Peter is saying is like, look, if you're suffering because you did something wrong, there's no credit to you. But there is such a thing as just suffering. Like, you show up late, you don't turn in your paperwork, you don't your job, you get fired. It's like, that's not because you're a Christian, that's just because you're a bad employee. And that happens. Right? What Peter is saying is like, hey, when that happens, that's, that's of no credit to you. He says, but if you do a good job and you're faithful at work and you are suffering because you are mindful of God, then it does please him. Now, why does it please God that you would do that? Well, because it demonstrates that he's your ultimate treasure. And it's an opportunity for you to walk in the footsteps of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. To what? To unjust suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So to what have we been called? Salvation? Yes. Forgiveness? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. Unjust suffering? Yes. That's a hard word, but it's true. To be a disciple of Jesus means to become more like Jesus, and Jesus' life was defined by unjust suffering. And what we have in Jesus in his unjust suffering is an example of how we are to respond when we are experiencing unjust suffering. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin. He'd done nothing wrong. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. That's important. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That was unjust suffering. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary, is the ultimate expression of unjust suffering. Jesus didn't suffer for his sins. He suffered for my sins. That's not just, but it is gracious. So here's the big idea. You might be marginalized in the medical community. You might be passed over for a promotion because of your convictions. You might be considered a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal because you believe the Bible. You might suffer at work, and when that happens, Jesus is your model. What did Jesus do when he suffered? Well, he didn't revile 
when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he suffered. You see, when we're mistreated, if you're anything like me, your instinct is to respond. When you are hurt, your instinct is to hurt. When you are spoken against, it's to speak against. Man, when you are hurt, your, your instinct is to threaten. That's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? The text says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What does that mean? It means, friends, that every single injustice done against you at work will be paid out by the Father in one of two places, either on the cross of Christ or in the torments of hell. Like justice will be served by your perfect heavenly Father. He will execute exact and perfect justice, drop for drop, not more, not less than is deserved by whoever is persecuting you. And because of that, you don't need to take vengeance. As the scriptures say, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So what are you called to do? You're called to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. You're called to bear up even under unjust suffering at work, and God is going to use it as a gracious thing in your character, and he might actually use it and to draw your coworkers to Christ. Okay, well, how do, you, I mean, how do you do that? It's like one thing for me to get up here and preach it, but like, Josh, you don't know who I work with, and you do not know my boss. He is a child. You know, like, I mean, I get it. Like, it's hard. I talked to you about it. Well, verse 25 helps. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's interesting that that's given in the context of suffering at work. Do you ever notice that? I think here's what Peter is saying. Like, hey, guys, don't forget that, like, you were a lost sheep too. Like, why am I in the kingdom of God? Why have I been transformed? Why is my character different than it was? Well, because I was totally lost. I had rejected God's authority. I was strained far away. Jesus Christ came to earth, found me, carried me back, is changing me. That's the only reason I'm different than anyone at my job. That's the only reason you're different than anybody that, that you work for. And when you remember that you were a lost sheep, it's easier to be patient with lost sheep. Right? When you remember that you were strained and that you had rejected the Lord's authority, then all of a sudden you look around and you say, okay, these people are difficult. They're making my life difficult, but I know why. And it's because they need to experience what I have experienced, and so now I can bear up. The Lord came and found me, so now I can be patient that he might come and find them. Okay, so we submit at work. Here we go. You ready for number four? Number four, we're called to submit in marriage. We're called to submit in marriage. We're just going to hit them all today. Okay, nobody's walked out yet. That's good. All right, we're called to submit in marriage. Likewise, chapter three, verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to, you see that phrase? It's all the same idea. Be subject to your own husbands. Okay, so this time Peter applies be subject to into the arena of marriage. So we've done our own passions of the flesh. We've done the government. We've done uh, employment. And now we're going to do marriage. Here's, here's what Peter says. Peter says wives are called to submit to their husbands. And husbands later, he's going to say, are called to submit to God in marriage. So both husbands and wives are called to submit in marriage, but two different people and in different ways. And Peter addresses wives first. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about now what is, it, what, what, what is God calling wives to do in marriage? Peter says wives be subject to your own Husbands. And again, that phrase means submit to or obey. Okay? So I can't get up here and say, oh, that's true about government and about employment and be like, oh, no, that's not what it means now in marriage. Like, it, it is what it means. Okay? Here we go. Clear teaching of the Bible is that men and women are equal but not interchangeable. Here's what that means men and women are created equal in dignity and worth and value, but in the home and in the church, God has created men and women with distinct roles to fulfill. Okay? That's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a thing we need to get rid of. That's a good, true, and beautiful thing. And so what we need to do is ask the question, man, why does it frustrate us so much And when the Bible says something like that? This is very, very clear in the Bible, but it's very, very difficult for many of us in our cultural moment. Okay, so before we go on to see what that means, let me just make a couple of observations that I I think will be helpful. Okay, number one, women aren't being singled out to submit. I mean, in this passage, all Christians have been called to submit in lots of different arenas. So it's not as though the Bible like singles out women and be like, you have to submit and men don't have to. We're We're all called to do it. Number two, um, God doesn't command marriage, truly. So if you don't want to submit to a husband, you don't have to. Like, you, you don't have to, to pursue marriage. Uh, number three, women aren't called to submit to men generally. Wives are called to submit to their husbands in particular. 
Okay, so this doesn't apply to like politics or, you know, like your education or, or healthcare or whatever. This is in, within the context of covenant marriage. This is what Christians are called to. Finally, um, submission is consistent with equality. It is submission, uh, it is consistent with equality. So uh, many people in our uh, culture would deny that. They would say, no, if, if there is submission, then the one submitting is by nature and definition less valuable than the one in authority. And the Bible just rejects that conclusion. And it's based on the word likewise. You see that word likewise? Likewise, wives do this. Likewise is tying you back to the behavior of Jesus on the cross. So what did Jesus do on the cross? He submitted his will to the Father's will. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Probably not my will, but your will be done. So here's what Peter is saying. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands in the way that Jesus Christ, God the Son, submits to the will of God the Father. So here's what that means. Just as Jesus submits to the Father but is absolutely equal with the Father, wives submit to their husbands even though they are absolutely equal with their husbands. Okay, so it doesn't mean like, hey, wives submit because you're inferior to your husbands. That's not at all what it says. It, it has nothing to do with characteristics. In fact, I know many, many Christian couples where, like, if we all just stepped back and evaluated both the husband and the wife, we'd be like, the wife's got more going on. You know, like, that's a five-talent woman, that's a one-talent man, you know? And you're like, I, in fact, I'm not even sure how he convinced her to marry him. I don't know, you know, you only got to fool one woman one time. You know, that's all you got to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's not about ability, okay? We got to get that. That is not why the Bible says this. That has nothing to do with ability. It is God's creation design. But and here's what I know. So all those four things, I hope that's helpful. Here's what I know. This subject's particularly hard for, for some people, maybe for you, because you've seen it go so badly. Like you've seen uh, husbands abuse their authority. You've seen them be selfish. You've seen them be overbearing. You've seen them be heavy-handed. You've, you've probably seen selfish, ungodly men use the Bible to justify their behavior. And that's just sin. That's all it is. It's just, it's just misinterpreting the Bible and not understanding it correctly. But what we have to resist is the temptation to throw out what the Bible says generally because somebody has abused it particularly. Right? And so hear me. I know it's very, very difficult to hear this if you're like, man, th th this is what my dad did or this is what granddad did or this is what I've seen done. This is what my husband did and then he left me. I get it. It's just, we got to kind of try to say, how can we be transformed in how we think about this? And here's what I've found practically that biblical marriage is offensive when preached, but beautiful when lived. So I get up here and I talk about, you know, headship and submission, and it's like, ah, you know, I'll get emails, and that's fine. Um, but here's the thing. When you, go, when you, like, go visit somebody's house where this is being lived out, like, the husband is, is lovingly, sacrificially leading his family, and the wife is, like, humbly submitting to the leadership of his husband, do you know what you call that? You call that the marriage you want. And you're like, man, I want that. Like, I want how they relate to one another. I love how she respects him. I love how gentle he is. I love this family culture. How do I get that? Well, we get that as we submit ourselves to the Bible's understanding of marriage. And we say, hey, I'm going to be shaped by what the Bible says about marriage, not what primetime television says about marriage, not what Netflix says about marriage. I don't know if you've been paying attention. Marriage isn't going great in culture. Okay? All you get, real quick here, this is what's happened in my life. When you graduate college, in about three years, all your friends are going to get married. Three years later, they're all going to get divorced. So just get ready for that. So when you're like 28 or 32, whenever your first group of friends gets married, give it six years, they'll all be divorced. That's what happened in my life right now. Because if you live your life, if you do your marriage the way our culture says to do marriage, you, it won't end well. But if we say, man, I think God knows better than me about this. I'm going to submit myself to this. Then we have an opportunity to live in his blessing. You, okay, so maybe you say, well, that's fine and good, Josh, but I don't have a, my husband's not a spiritual leader. My husband isn't even a Christian. What am I supposed to do? Well, Peter actually addresses this in, in verse three. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read kind of a long section here. He says, like, uh, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, so they're not Christians, they're apathetic spiritually, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so the key word in this section is adorning. Okay, and the word adorning means the focus of your attractiveness. The focus of your attractiveness. You want to be attractive. Fair enough. Peter's not saying don't be attractive. He's saying make sure the focus of your attraction is your internal beauty, your internal character, your honorable conduct. He says it's fine if you want to braid your hair and buy jewelry and wear clothes. Those things aren't inherently sinful. He's just saying don't make that the focus of your attractiveness. Instead, make the focus of your attractiveness your faith in God. Man, your, your character that's becoming more like Christ. And when that happens, when your husband sees your godly conduct, God might use it to bring him to faith in Christ. You see how it's the same theme in all the different areas of life? It's like godly conduct under hard circumstances God uses to save people. I've actually seen this happen. I've seen it happen at our church. I've seen men wives that show up, and they've got their kids, and they're super involved, and, and we don't know where dad is. We don't know, where, okay, he's, he's not a Christian, or he doesn't really care spiritually. But then mom starts growing, the kids start growing, and all of a sudden, a couple months later, dad starts showing up. And God uses the godly witness of that man's wife to bring him to faith in Christ. And so what I would say is, if you're a woman here and you're in that situation, I'd just say, like, hang in there. I know it's hard. And I would just say, share it. Like, share it with the missional community so that, man, our church family, we can be bearing that with you and we can be praying alongside of you. Because I know it's hard. And I know sometimes it feels like it's making no difference. But, man, believe me, I've seen it happen. And Peter promises that when we live godly lives, God uses our godly and honorable conduct to bring people to faith. So what are wives called to do in marriage? They're called to submit to their husbands. So what are husbands called to do in marriage? They are called to submit to God. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see that word likewise again? Likewise means husbands are called to lead their wives in the way that Jesus leads the church. So wives are called to submit to their husbands the way the church submits to the submits to Jesus, husbands are called to lead their wives in the way that Jesus leads the church. So how does Jesus lead the church? Does Jesus lead the church selfishly? Does he lead the church with a heavy hand? Does he lead the church for his own purposes? Now, what did Jesus do? He died for the church. He laid his life down so that the church could be saved, so that the church could be built up, so that the church could be sanctified. So here's what this means if you're a Christian husband. Your, your wife is called to submit. You're called to die. Meredith came up to me a couple months ago out of nowhere, and she was like, you know, marriage is hard for both of us, but I think it's harder for you. And I was like, okay. And she's like, I'm called to submit. You're called to die. And I was like, yeah, that's true. So what does this look like practically? It, it looks like if you're a husband, your new job description is make everything for your wife better. Stop making everything worse. Like, it's not about you. It's not about what you want to watch, where you want to eat, what you want to do, what you want to spend money on. It's all about serving and blessing and helping your wife grow in grace. That is your job description. And, and Peter says, live with your wife in an, in an understanding way. What does that mean? It means study her, observe her, get to know her, understand what makes her tick, what frustrates her, what delights her, what are her dreams, and then buy her something she doesn't need but she will love. Free marriage advice. Okay? The, the problem isn't that many, many people have seen Christian marriage and rejected it. The problem is that so few people have seen actually Christian marriages. Because can I tell you who it's very easy to submit to? A man that leads his wife like Jesus leads the church. 
Man, he dies for me. He lays down his preferences for me. He does everything in his power to bless me and care for me and help me grow and help me flourish. Of course I want to follow his leadership. The reason it's so hard for Christian wives to follow their husbands is because their husbands are such clowns. It's like, stop watching six hours of football. Like, go hang out with the kids. Like, send your wife out so she can have some TLC. Like, stop being so childish and selfish. And then being like, well, I've been childish and selfish, and I have a Bible verse, so now we're going to do what I want to do for dinner. It's like, no, jerk. Like, God, gosh. All right, it's just like, Christian marriage is so beautiful when it's Christian marriage. The problem is that what, what we've thought is Christian marriage is selfish, sinful, cultural marriage. And if you want to know how serious God is about this, look at what he says at the end. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's, here's what that means. If you are mistreating God's daughter, he's not going to listen to you when you call. I mean, think about it. I have two daughters. Think about this. If you are mistreating my daughter and then you try to have a conversation with me, this is not happening. Like until you make this right, we're not talking. That's how serious and that's how committed God is to the well-being of Christian women in marriage. He says, look, guys, I'm not going to listen to your prayers until you make things right with my daughter. So we are called, there is no getting around it. If you are a wife, you are called to submit to your husband in marriage. If you are a husband, you are called to die for your wife in marriage. And we all submit in marriage. We submit in different ways. All right, we've covered a lot of ground. It's been a hard word. We submit to God, we submit to the government, we submit at work, and we submit in marriage. It's a hard word. But it's a necessary one. It's a necessary one because submission is at the very heart of Christianity. What is sin if not rebellion against God's authority? What is salvation if not submitting to Jesus as Lord? So I would suggest that if you have a hard time with submission, it might be because you have a hard time with the gospel. You see, friends, the gospel crushes you before it saves you. Because what the gospel does is it comes into my life and it comes into your life and it says, you're not a good person who makes mistakes. It says, you're a rebel who deserves execution. You've committed persistent, arrogant, cosmic treason against your creator, sustainer, redeemer, and king. And yet when Jesus Christ came to the world, he didn't come to the world to crush you. Do you know what he came to do? He came to be crushed for you. So that through his suffering, so that through his death, you could be saved of all your rebellion. And you could learn to joyfully submit to the patterns that God has given you for his glory, your good, and for the salvation of the world. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. A king who dies for the sins of his rebellious people is a king worth trusting. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just want to give you one question to think about. Friends, where do you need to stop rebelling and where do you need to start submitting? Where do you need to stop rebelling and where do you need to start submitting? The pathway to blessing and flourishing and knowing God more is often the pathway of humility and submission.